good morning, Dr. Krimidzis. Good morning from Baltimore, uh, United States of America. I know it's good afternoon in Greece now. You're in Hios. Correct. That's correct. Okay, uh, so we have 30 minutes to cover decades of a glorious <laughs> career uh, in space exploration. So I will start immediately with my first question. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I go to dinner parties and, you know, Americans, the, the second question they ask you, the first one is, what's your name? The second question they ask you, what do you do for a living? And I always struggle. I, I say space physicist. They tell me, oh, rocket scientist. If I say space physicist in Greece, they tell me astrophysicist. What is it exactly that you do <laughs> for a living? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I have the same problem. And of course, uh, in my case, being uh, at the tail end of, uh, of my career, uh, I, I have to ask, uh, what do you really mean? Do you mean what I do now, or what <laughs> I've done? And, uh, uh, and so I'll start by saying what I do now, mainly, is because I'm taking care of uh, the instrument that we, our team has on the Voyager space. And I've been doing that now for the last, uh, I guess, when we started Voyager, it was probably 50 years ago in, in mm -hmm. 1971. And at that time, I was um, as young as you or even younger. And, and uh, uh, it, it was amazing. I mean, I thought it was going to be a four-year mission and it turned out to be a 44-year mission so far. <laughs> so and, and it keeps on going. So that's what I do. Most, I spend most of my time. But uh, as you know, I've been a principal investigator or co-investigator of many instruments on spacecraft and missions since the early 60s. Yes. And uh, I have also done management, uh, as you know, uh, of missions and, and, and people and what have you. So that's what I did. But what I'm doing now is Voyager. Okay, great. Yeah, and we will get to a little bit of all these things that you just mentioned. So um, I would like to know a little bit about your story. So you started from Hios, uh, which is where you're vacationing right now. And then you ended up working with uh, James Van Allen, uh, who is a legend in space exploration. Uh, and with your first mission, uh, Mariner 4, uh, back in the days, so mission to Mars. So I'd really like to know what inspired you to come to the United States and pursue a career in space physics. And how was it to work with James Van Allen? Good questions. Uh, needless to say, uh, as, as you have probably determined, a lot of things happen by accident. So the enabling accident in my case was that my father was an immigrant in the United States, and uh, and he decided that I was going to be studying in the United States. No specification of what or anything like that. And, and so when I finished what used to be gymnasium, and it's now uh, Legion, I packed my bags and went to Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota. And I signed up to do electrical engineering. And uh, soon uh, thereafter, I transferred to physics. And I had the 
the second accident happened to me, which was that Sputnik went up. Van Allen sent up the first American satellite. He discovered the Van Allen belts and came to the University of Minnesota from Iowa to tell all the students about that. And uh, my professor, I was an, an assistant in the laboratory of Jack Winkler at the time, and he brought him by my, my bench and he asked me what I was doing and so on and so forth. Uh, bottom line was that he asked me to go to, as a graduate student to Iowa. So that's what uh, got me to Iowa City and essentially to the main part of my career. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was working on data from a satellite that actually had been built at the University of Iowa, the first ever, by the, uh, the way, university satellite believe it or not, was in 1961. Yeah. And, uh, and APL had put in the first ever solid state detectors on there. And uh, because as you know, Van Allen was an alumnus of APL. He was at APL yep. before he went to Iowa to become the department head. And Van Allen uh, uh, essentially uh, somehow called me to his office and he says, how would you like to be a co-investigator on Mariner 4? And I said, what is that? <laughs> and he said, oh, it's the first US mission to Mars. Mm -hmm. And um, and I said, what do I have to do? He says, all you have to do is design a detector that separates electrons from protons, because until that time, the Geiger counters that they were yeah. flying would not do that job. So. So I said, I don't think I know how to do that. And he said, oh, you'll learn. And I <laughs> said, by the way, when's the spacecraft uh, going up? He says, uh, in about uh, 14 months. <laughs> Plus 10 around. <laughs> so now that gives you a calibration point about then and now. Yes. And, and then uh, I, uh, I started working and I finally got my uh, instrument working about a month before launch. <laughs> wow. Uh, with a very innovative solid state detector system and so on and so forth. And the rest is history, as they say. But Van Allen's method was he threw you in the overboard and see if you could swim. If you could swim, fine. But if you couldn't swim, well, that was that. Too bad. And, yeah, uh, but he was an excellent uh, uh, communicator. He was uh, an excellent user of, of the English language. I learned a tremendous amount from him uh, and, uh, and a very good mentor, excellent mentor. That's in brief. Okay, <laughs> thank you. So you you did swim <laughs> after all, you didn't drown. So on uh, July 14th of 2015, uh, the New Horizon spacecraft was the swoop past uh, Pluto, that took the first uh, pictures up close of Pluto. And then it was when you became the only person to have visited all nine planets of our solar system, instrumentally speaking. That is, either you led an instrument uh, in a mission that went to a planet, or you were co-investigator co um, uh, in an experiment uh, in space. So, um, and I would like you to recall 
one, your most proud moment in all these years, and second, the biggest challenge you had to overcome? <sighs> it's a hard um, question. I'm sure there were many moments, but... Uh, I have to say that uh, when Voyager 1 crossed the boundary of the, to the galaxy from our solar system, mm -hmm. Uh, it suddenly struck me that this was the first ever that humanity has ever left our solar system. And I happen to be one of the people who were somehow representing humanity on this mission. And that was yeah. a sobering thought. Uh, I don't know if you could call it a, a proud moment, but certainly the instrument was still working, we've got wonderful data, we have published so many papers. Uh, uh, so, now the biggest challenge was back in 2000, when the, the near spacecraft, and the, the near Earth asteroid rendezvous mm -hmm. that we had targeted to become a satellite of the asteroid Eros arrived nearby and the maneuver that we had initiated failed and we lost the spacecraft for something like 24 hours. We didn't get into orbit mm -hmm. and, and it was a terrific uh, blow uh, for a couple of reasons. I will, I will explain in a minute, but the main thing was that we soon got together and realized that if we took the spacecraft one more orbit around the sun, then a year later, we would arrive and try to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Provided, of course, that we knew what happened. And we did find out what happened and we did uh, get back. And the reason that was a terrific disappointment for me is because this was the first time that uh, NASA was trying to do a very low cost mission. And we said, we were the ones to do it. Yeah. And, and if it failed, it would have been a terrific blow for us, of course, but it would have been a terrific blow for NASA in and the community in thinking that you can actually do low-cost planetary mm -hmm. exploration. So um, fortunately, the second time around, no, not, not only did we succeed in 2001 to get uh, the spacecraft into orbit around Eros, we stayed there for, for a year, we collected all the data, and then we did something that was really uh, daring. We said, look, we have a little fuel left and we can actually land the sucker on the, on the <laughs> asteroid. And it wasn't designed to do that, needless to say. And uh, I was tasked to uh, uh, go to headquarters and present the plan to uh, uh, Ed Weiler, who's the associate administrator. And he was intrigued by the whole thing. And we, uh, he said, well, you know, we have to see if uh, Dan Golden, the NASA administrator, is going to accept that. In the meantime, he says, why don't you go ahead and plan? <laughs> and we did. 
and, uh, and the long and short of it is, of course, that we actually landed. The spacecraft was kept on broadcasting data. We got the best gamma ray spectrum from the surface of an asteroid than anybody wow. ever had, uh, and so on. But it was what was my biggest challenge and would have been my biggest failure <laughs> turned out to be <laughs> the greatest success, the greatest success. Ways because uh, you know at the time i was the personification of the better faster cheaper and mm -hmm. I, I was going to have to stand up and say sorry sports fan but you know we we blew it you have and to be course, spending billions of dollars. From yes, and of course, uh, you know, we also returned about 30 million back to NASA in that program, which had never happened before. And I heard all kinds of abuse from people in industry and from other laboratories who mm -hmm. said that, uh, that nobody ever returns money to NASA, shame on you. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm I'm very pleased to live with that shame. Yes, <laughs> me too. So um, actually, this is a great segue, I think, from for my next question. Um, as you already mentioned, you worked at APL Applied Physics Lab of Johns Hopkins University. For people who are not familiar with uh, um, the abbreviation. Uh, you were the space department head there from 1991 to 2004. And uh, as you just said, and I, I know for a fact because I work at the same place now, you kind of, you, you revolution, revolutionize uh, how, how space exploration uh, was done back then. It, as you said, uh, you know, NASA had this idea that you have to spend billion dollars to do a planetary mission. And you said, no, no, I'll set up my rules. Um, if you follow my rules, we will be able to do this much, much cheaper. And as you just said, you succeeded. How do you see space business uh, today what are the difference you know from then and now and where do you see space exploration going especially with so many billionaires investing in it these days i think the space age is a little bit different <laughs> now yeah that's uh, let me answer the first part of the question uh, the, the, the uh, on what what was different then the, the biggest difference was in the degree of controls that NASA bureaucracy uh, was requiring for all space missions. At that time, they gave us essentially freedom to do things as we mm -hmm. saw fit. And we had about, you know, the typical four design reviews that uh, preliminary, critical, right. pre flight, etc. And that was it. By the time, at the end of uh, 13 or 14 years, I was a department head, uh, the bureaucracy had gotten so huge and the requirements, the formal requirements so big that on, on Messenger, for example, which we did at the tail end of my tenure at APL and on New Horizons, we had something like over a hundred reviews and we were spending a lot of time 
the staff was spending a lot of time preparing for reviews instead of doing the work. And I thought things were going the wrong direction. And that was one of the reasons that drove me to step down and devote my time to the Cassini mission for which I was principal investigator. Uh, so, so today, I mean, things are far different than the faster, better, cheaper management style that, that we've demonstrated could work. Now, the second part of your questions about where is space exploration going? Uh, yeah. uh, you know, Yogi Berra said once, um, the future is, is, sorry, he said, predictions are difficult especially about the future. <laughs> so so you, you're too young to remember George Berra or know George Berra, but he was the catcher for the New York Yankees for many years. And he was what, what you might call a, a street philosopher, so to speak. And he had all these sayings. So, uh, actually, um, I, I would dare say I'm optimistic from the standpoint of scientific discovery, uh, uh, because I think that the human spaceflight program, which of course, as you pointed out, billionaires are investing in, it's probably going to go going private more and more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that means that scientific missions uh, will become essentially the mainstay of NASA and space agencies throughout the world. So I think, and I won't be around to see to see any prediction, but but I think scientific discovery and uh, the, the robotic exploration has a big future. And young people like you are the ones who are going to benefit from that. And, and, uh, and speaking of that, I know, of course, uh, that you are now the lead investigator on a mission that will launch, I think, in 23, is it? Uh, or 22? Uh, 24. 24. 24. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, so, um, and I know that. You did a terrific job in analyzing data on uh, on missions that you did not build the instruments for. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in a new era, so you couldn't. That is hardly ever the case. Uh, so and uh, so, how does it feel that you are going to be now the person? who is going to be writing about the instrument that you created and led? Uh, it's uh, very exciting and very terrifying at the same time, <laughs> I have to confess. Uh, it's interesting for me, you know, my, my PhD, for example, had nothing to do with data or instruments. I was a modeler. I was what we were saying. I was building computer simulations to predict what nature would do. And then, you know, if the data showed I was right, great. If this showed I was wrong, go back to the drawing board. And then when I came to APL, actually, I started working with data with the Van Allen probes mission. And after that, I was like, 
it's not enough. I think I want to know how these instruments work that produce this data so that I can understand better the data and the nature and how I can design different experiments in the future if I want to investigate different regions, different uh, processes, different planets. And that's how I was working with Don Mitchell at APL, who is like the instrument magician. <laughs> he has built so many instruments and he brought me to the IMAP uh, team. And he was like, okay, this is your chance. Do you wanna take the lead on this instrument? And I said, okay, let, let's do this. And now I have to uh, not just manage an instrument. Managing an instrument means that you need to manage people, scientists, engineers working together, make sure that uh, they can communicate with each other <laughs> when, through during the process. Um, and that's not so, always easy. <laughs> so I'll ask you a, a rhetorical question. How many uh, management courses have you taken to prepare you for that? <laughs> Uh, none. I, I'm, I'm actually taking now after the <laughs> I started taking all the leadership and management courses APL has to offer. Um, well, but no, none. It was just by experience and, you know, the, the throw me into the, the ocean, as you said, and swim or <laughs> drown. Just to make you feel better, I have never taken a management course. Yeah. I've learned a lot from other people uh, as I was going along. So, I think, yeah, I think I, I was very, very lucky with the mentors I've had so far. I have to that's say. That's the key thing. Yeah. And, yeah. okay, so the great, great, again, segue to my next question. Give me some leadership advice. <laughs> uh, because sometimes I do struggle, I will confess. Well, uh, you're already a lead investigator, so obviously uh, people have recognized that you I can do something this. right. <laughs> yes. So, so you know, um, uh, the, I can tell you what I practice. I'm really not that good at giving uh, advice. Um, I always concentrate on doing the best job possible where I was, you know, if I was the uh, lead person on an instrument, it would do the best job possible and manage the people. And I never planned for the next job. Uh, I wanted the recognition of my peers where I was. And, and what happens is, miraculously almost, is that people, who are above you at management positions, see what you're doing and they come to you and they say, hey, you know, we really think that you should take on this additional responsibility or another responsibility uh, because uh, they appreciate a talent. Uh, and I never applied for a job. It was always some, people who would come and say, well, we need you to do this. And that's how it worked. But yet in doing the best job possible where you are and being recognized by your peers, being an excellent uh, scientist, publishing 
Mm -hmm. uh, respecting people, which I know you do, and all these things. That is its own reward. Other people are going to say, hey, Matina should be doing a much more responsible uh, job than she's doing now, and we'll see how we can talk her into it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the best I can say. Uh, at least it worked in my case, uh, and, and uh, I always didn't want to get a promotion, and people used to tell me, no, you must do this for yeah. the institution. So, uh, <laughs> yes, that, that's how they trick you. <laughs> um, okay, great. Thank you. I don't know how good that, uh, how, whether I, I uh, answered your question, but that's the best I can uh, do. You, you did, you did. Uh, okay, the next question actually is, um, it intrigued me very much when I heard, so I heard an interview of yours. Um, you said that uh, James Van Allen, your mentor, initially advised you not to go to APL because it's a soft money position, meaning that um, your job would depend on contracts. You know, if you brought missions in uh, your own money, pretty much you would get paid. <laughs> That's how you create your salary, uh, as opposed to a tenured uh, faculty position, for example, at a university. So your response was, and I quote, if I do a good job, I don't need to worry about work. If I don't do a good job, then I don't deserve to work. And in the same interview, you also said, give yourself a chance to get lucky. So my question to you, since I, I'm, I was also one of these people that I studied, so my, I took my bachelor's degree in Greece, so, I was a little bit lost there in the process of, in the physics department, what I would do next. What would be your advice to young students of any physics department in Greece that might feel anxious about job security when they explore career path options? Well, uh, you know, um, at the time I was still at Iowa and brand new PhD and all that, uh, uh, jobs were plentiful. Mm -hmm. uh, so you knew you were going to be able to work now. The situation in Greece is very different than the U in the US. Uh, Greece, as you probably know, graduates the same total number of physicists as the US does. Total number of physicists, okay. even though the United States has 35 times as many people. Right. So. The job prospects for a physicist in Greece are poor. So to get to the second part of your question, what I would advise somebody, what I would advise uh, a student today is not to go into physics. <laughs> now, but if they are indeed, uh, they have a passion for the subject and they're very yeah. good, then I would say, go to Europe or go to the United States. Okay. Uh, that's what I, uh, and then my advice applies, then you have a chance to get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's what I would say to a Greek student. And I often do, by the way, uh, right. in my talks to schools and what have you. Yeah, we'll, um, okay, talk to schools. Then let me get to that question. Um, 
you give a lot of uh, public outreach talks, both in US and in Greece. And I know, and as you just mentioned, you give a lot of talks in schools in Greece. Why do you think that is important? And what are the most common questions you get from students? And what was the best question you ever got from a student? The one that it intrigued you the most, or you it was hard for you to answer, or I don't know, something that made an impression on you? Yeah, why do I give so many talks to students in Greece? Because, um, you know, when I came back uh, to Greece for extended uh, time in the world as a member of the Academy back in 2005, I found that students were totally despondent, I would say. They have no hope. The, uh, uh, their, their professors or teachers in school uh, would tell them, oh, there are no prospects, you know, uh, I think this is a bad situation and so forth. So I felt that they needed encouragement. And uh, the best way to encourage people is to show them an example. And by going to the school and, and, uh, and the students realizing that here's a person who started out from a small island in Greece and never going to a private school and, uh, and somehow he got to do all these things in space. There is hope for me. And I told them that they had to study hard, they had to dream, they had to be excellent, pursue excellence. Mm -hmm. And so my sense was to encourage them as much as possible. Uh, now, uh, in terms of the questions I got, I'm sure you have given talks in, in Greece. I know you have in schools and, and everybody wants to know, silly as it might sound, are, are there UFOs? Uh, are, <laughs> yes. are, are, are there people in other worlds and so on? So, so that's uh, the, the most common question you ask uh, the, the, and not the serious one. One question that I got that impressed me was, um, in fact, in some of my early talks in the school, a student said, uh, sir, you talk about our team did this and our team did that and we built this instrument and so on. He says, what do you mean by that? Isn't here people say, I did this and I did that. And, and I said, you know, that took me aback. And I said, look, you know, in, in the space business is not one person that does right. things. He's an entire team, we all work together. Every person uh, has a big contribution to make. One mistake can sink the whole thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I said, it's never like that. And I said, if I may so, say so, it's never like that in any endeavor. And I think we in Greece have to learn that and work as teams and not I. So the sensitivity of, of a student in a school to, to differentiate this and to perceive that mode of expression really impressed me, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Um, so 
I have two more questions and we're done. You're a counselor on space to the Minister of Digital Governance of Greece and chairman of the National Committee for Space Research at the Academy of Athens. Here's my question to you. Space physics in Greece, quo vadis? Well, there is a di dichotomy on space physics and space research in Greece in general. And it's this, that in, uh, in many, in, I would say there are some university departments, as well as some of the research centers, there are scientists who are very good and do good work, they publish, uh, and they do so usually with funding from European uh, institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you might say that is good. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as, as you know, there is a newly formed government agency, the Hellenic Space Center, HSC, uh, which is trying to put itself together and actually become a, a, a true space agency like the other countries have. And, and it's running smack into Greek bureaucracy about everything that you and I have learned can be done very easily, mm -hmm. but not in Greece. <laughs> so uh, it, 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 it has some ways to go. And uh, a person like me, I mean, who is not in a position being a, a pro bono, uh, Counselor to the to the minister, uh, even when I tell him uh, exactly what needs to be done, it doesn't mean that it can be done because the bureaucracy will prevent him or her to mm -hmm. do the job. And it's a long-term process. Greece has to overcome that. I don't know when and if they will, but unless they do that, the kvovad is for Greek space activity is not uh, right. I see. So you managed to fight NASA bureaucracy, but not Greek bureaucracy quite yet. Okay. You... <laughs> That's a good way to put it's it. It's impressive. Uh... Um, okay, my very last question to end this in a positive note. Um, in a perfect setting, what would be your favorite place to invite your guests who would you invite? What would be served? And what music will be playing in the background? Uh, that's really a tough question. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, on, on where, what's my favorite place? You know, my favorite place obviously would be a beach in <laughs> any part of Greece, uh, watching the ocean. Uh, or if I had to be in space, I would like to sit on Europa and watch the volcanoes on, uh, on Io, at Jupiter. But that isn't going to happen anytime soon. So, so who would I invite? Well, good friends, not all from the profession. I mean, I can tell you some names, you know, I have a very good friend by the name of Yanis Kokinos, who's a childhood friend 
from Kios. Uh, uh, Mike Isprovatas, who is a very thoughtful journalist and very well read. Uh, um, uh, Lula Anzaravi, my lifelong mm -hmm, colleague, mm -hmm. and he and I have been together on so many missions. Uh, very good friend, we talk uh, very often. Dick McIntyre, who was formerly at APL, uh, I don't know if you were there when he, he left, he was the group no, supervisor. but I met him afterwards, yeah. Yeah, and uh, excellent physicist and uh, very, very wonderful person. Uh, Lucas Christoforou, who, uh, fellow uh, member of the Academy of Athens. Um, so the, these are some of the people. Mm -hmm. I would invite. Uh, and you know, I was asked once about uh, what would be a good song that would describe uh, how I felt. And what came to mind is uh, so, so I say that in the background, it would be Frank Sinatra uh, singing, I did it my way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he was uh, a wonderful singer and, and it's a classic uh, uh, song that I and love And I think it describes much. you perfectly. <laughs> uh, and I feel I, I identify with it. Yes. Uh, I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. Saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this. I did it my. sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew but through it all when there was doubt I ate it up and spit it out I faced it all and I stood tall and did it Thank you. Thank you very much for this interview. It was a pleasure to talk to you, as always. A pleasure to talk to you, Martina, and all the best in your uh, uh, endeavors in space and, and elsewhere. And, uh, and I'm sure you'll be a, a person that uh, are already a person that uh, 
many Greek men and women will be proud of all that you do. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.